0: Well, Monday marks a year since the world watched the Taliban roll back into Afghanistan's capital, Kabul, and more than 20 years after they were ousted, take control of the country once again. I spent quite a bit of time in Afghanistan, and it was difficult to watch. I thought of all those that I'd met while I was there, specifically those who cared so much about working under a non-Taliban-ruled Afghanistan. And what were they going to do? We saw the chaos of tens of thousands of people trying to flee to the airport to try to get out of there. The announced withdrawal of American troops that helped prompt the Taliban takeover was completed soon after. And suddenly, after two decades of nation-building there, or attempts to, uh, you know, the blood and treasure that it cost us as Canadians, you know, the, the work Canadian forces did, The soldiers that were lost, the soldiers that were injured, all the rest of uh, those who came back with scars that may not be seen but have been difficult to heal. Many were left to wonder, what now? What next? Is everything we did over all that time completely undone? Well, few Canadians know that country as well as my next guest, a former Globe and Mail correspondent, author of The Dogs Are Eating Them Now. Graham Smith is now a senior court consultant for Afghanistan for the International Crisis Group and was back in Afghanistan this spring. He joins me from London. Graham, thank you so much for your time. Welcome back. Nice to, nice to see, to see you. you. Nice to see you again. Um, listen, you spent so much time in Afghanistan over the years. You were just back. Uh, what's it like? What, what What is your sense of how things are when you've When you land there now given the amount of time you spent there over over the past decades it's weirdly weirdly quiet i mean
1: the reason you and i went there basically is because there is a great big war um and so it's odd to be back when there isn't um you know a lot of the check posts have been dismantled you know, walking into a ministry building used to be a whole thing. You know, you'd you had to book carefully in advance and you'd get frisked and then frisked again. And, you know, your your gear would get taken apart if you were a broadcast journalist. And, you know, just physically getting in the building was a whole palaver. And now um, just, you know, everybody's much more relaxed at all the checkpoints, um, and, um, you know, Afghans are uh, experiencing uh, a bit of calm, a bit of respite from what had been the deadliest conflict on the planet Earth. Uh, I would say it's a, nervous, it's a nervous calm, especially, you know, for people in the urban areas um, who, you know, are not so happy about the Taliban taking over. It's, uh, um, uh, there's a lot of paranoia about um, living under the Taliban. But j- just that feeling of, of, of the war being finished is, is, is quite an odd thing.
0: Yeah, I guess that begs the question then at what price peace, right? Because obviously we've heard about uh, or read about and seen uh, the erosion of certain rights that have been in place. Uh, what's your sense of how that, that has been in the first year of Taliban rule? Just how different is it now, uh, war aside? It's quite different. It's quite different. I mean, um, the Taliban took
1: power, promising their own supporters uh, an Islamic system. Didn't really say what that meant, Um, but uh, you know, and and I think there were you know different views within the Taliban about about what that should mean. You know, some of them thought um, they would have something not too different from the previous government, um, and maybe a kind of symbolic, uh, figurehead emir. Um, And then, you know, in the spring, what we found out is the emir uh, had different plans, you know, he had different ideas. And and so there was a kind of a, a group of religious conservatives around the supreme leader of the Taliban, the emir, who really started to assert themselves and you saw them, um, banning girls from secondary education, uh, although that a ban apparently only applies in about half the provinces, um, decreeing that uh, women should not uh, reveal their faces in public. Uh, although, again, you know, enforcement has been really not um, as bad as we had feared. Um, And then also, you know, with the recent discovery of Zawahiri, the al-Qaeda leader, sort of living on the doorstep of the Taliban in downtown Kabul, um, I think you really got a sense that there are, you know, some people within the Taliban um, (laughs) who have very different ideas than the, the group of Taliban who were sort of negotiating with the
0: Americans and hoping for better relations with the outside world. So this notion of Taliban 2.0 is, uh, is a complex one, no doubt.
1: I, you know, yeah, I've never used that phrase. I think yeah. it's a bit silly. It is a bit silly. So
0: I agree. But yeah. I've always,
1: yes. I've always told people the Taliban are the Taliban, you know, yeah. and, and, and actually, you know, in, in Afghan political terms, they're, you know, they remain the most cohesive and sort of consistent political group that we've seen, you know, in, in recent decades. A lot of the different political factions have really sort of splintered and changed.
0: And, you know, the Taliban have been remarkably consistent over the years. So it's amazing to think that what you have now is a sort of wiser, cohesive Taliban in power. It feels like even with sanctions in place, we know there's a humanitarian crisis going on in the country. But this particular regime seems fairly immune to, uh, to isolation from the West and those sanctions. What's going on?
1: Well, they certainly have their problems. Um, I, would, you know, I, I, I devote a lot of my professional career to sort of listing those problems and, and analyzing them. Um, But, yes, I mean, they took over – the moment they took over the sort of existing Western sanctions against the Taliban kind of snapped into place as – sanctions essentially against the uh, entire government, in some ways, the entire state, and and in some cases, the entire territory of Afghanistan. Because, you know, at least initially, um, it was very, very hard to do even just any kind of private business, because everyone thought that the sort of long shadow of US sanctions would uh, affect private business. The, The Americans have taken some rapid steps to try to um, ease the blow, I think, um, especially with something called General License 20 in the spring it was actually the the most sort of far reaching exception to US sanctions ever in US sanctions history. Um, and there's some people in the Treasury Department who are very proud that they've sort of, you know, lifted that burden from the Afghan people. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, billions of dollars of central banking assets remain held, essentially frozen in uh, the United States and in Europe. More more or less, the western powers have robbed the central bank um, and there is still a huge chilling effect from from u s sanctions um, correspondent banking relationships have dried up um you know so the western economic restrictions continue to bear heavily on the economy. And that's partly why Afghanistan is uh, one of the largest humanitarian disasters on the planet Earth. The, the latest UN review uh, put about half the population on the brink of starvation, 20 million people on the brink of starvation. And so that's, you know, the, as we get towards winter, um, I think that will again be the focus
0: as uh, everyone tries to avert uh, a bigger famine. I'm speaking with Graham Smith. He's a senior consultant for Afghanistan with the International Crisis Group. He's speaking to us tonight from London. We're talking about the uh, the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul, the return of the Taliban, which has brought both peace and uh, conflict in other ways to the country. Uh, we've been talking just now about the humanitarian crisis, which has worsened uh, of late in Afghanistan. And one of the dilemmas facing many Western governments is, how do you help the people of Afghanistan while not helping uh, the regime. It's a, it's a, it's a dilemma that uh, we haven't seemed to quite figured out just yet. We'll talk about that with Graham after this. Our guest is Graham Smith. He's a senior consultant for Afghanistan with the international crisis group. He's of course, a former global mail journalist and author who spent a lot of time in that country, including most recently uh, a visit this spring. Uh, Graham, you, you bring up an interesting point because there is this desire, I think to, to help, um, uh, Afghanistan, a country that we have spent a lot of time in in this century, help it avoid the worst of this humanitarian crisis. At the same time, uh, there is this reluctance to help the Taliban, and 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 it you, you can't do both, can you?
1: Exactly you- right. Exactly right. It's you know, <sighs> this is one of those things where I, I wish that the the thing that is sort of politically feasible in the West is also the thing that's feasible on the ground in Afghanistan, and it's just not. Uh, there is no way of helping the Afghan people with an economic revival in a way that does not whatsoever assist uh, you know, the Taliban-controlled government. I mean, it is now um, you know, the stated policy of the United States and Europe to assist with uh, getting the economy back on its feet. And what that will mean is more uh, revenues flowing into the central treasury of the Taliban-controlled government. There's, there's no getting around that fact. In fact, that is our exit route. That is the way of making the country self-sufficient uh, so that it does not require the largest you know, humanitarian intervention on the planet Earth. Uh, we, we, you know, we don't want to keep sending bags of food. We, we don't actually have enough bags of food to send. Um, and so you know, helping the Taliban regime to sort of get its act together on the economic front, you know, as, as much as we hate the Taliban, that's really the only option. And um, it is difficult, and it's resulted in some, you know, very hard conversations, um, you know, within governments, um, within multilateral organizations. I I really think that small countries like Canada have kind of avoided that hard conversation because it just, it's such a marginal issue, you know, it hardly gets any airtime whatsoever. And so Canada actually retains these incredibly tough uh, sanctions rules that makes it very hard for uh, humanitarian organizations to operate on the ground, um, but it hardly gets any attention in Ottawa. And
0: and so I, I don't see a huge movement to lift those restrictions. And yet, you know, and you mentioned it off the top, you know, part of the reason we were there, obviously, at the time, and you spent a lot more time in Afghanistan than I did, but it was the, to, to chart Canada's uh, mission in that country. Part of that mission was to bring about change when it came to women's education and so on is there any way now to try to preserve some of what was achieved over that over those many many years and you know through blood and treasure no doubt is there any way to achieve that without recognizing that the taliban are essentially there for the time being to stay i don't think i don't think diplomatic recognition really has anything to do with it and i right. that is a yeah. I don't. Mean, I mean, I mean more less diplomatic recognition than more. If if you want to see Afghanistan progress, it's going to be the way it is now. In other words,
1: yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the education is a really good example, actually, because um, it's a very important service that is delivered by the state. I mean. We can't just kind of parachute education NGOs into Afghanistan completely separate from the Taliban and create some sort of parallel system of education. Like, no, we we have schools, there is an education ministry, um, you know, like it or not, it's an education ministry controlled by the Taliban and we have to work with it. Um, and you know, that is what uh donors are trying to do actually outside of Canada. You know, for Canadians, um, you know, the Canadians have still said that not a penny uh of funding can go to uh state institutions. That's still um the Canadian attitude. But you know, other donors are much more forward-leaning and they are getting involved with trying to help just you know, uh with the nuts and bolts of you know getting the education ministry working. And I have to say, it is having some limited successes. Um, there are today more girls in school in Afghanistan across the country than there were under previous governments, according to the World Bank. Uh, now, that is uh, leaving uh, that's, that average means that there are a lot of girls flooding into primary schools because the war is over and because families, conservative families especially, feel that it's okay to send your girls to school under a Taliban-controlled government. Um, so they don't have those same cultural concerns, and you know there is still a gaping hole in in secondary where uh, teenage girls in many provinces, in too many provinces, are still shut out of schools. Um, but you know the way to fix that problem is to is to work with the Taliban on it, and um, and unfortunately that's the only way forward.
0: I think that's a reality that that people are having a hard time coming to. I mean, and as you mentioned, Canada's regime is sanctions regime is still very much in place. Is that is that hurting? our legacy there? I guess what I was trying to get at is that, you know, we spent a lot of years in that country trying to build something and it would be a shame to throw it all away because we can't deal with changing realities on the ground.
1: It's a hard emotional thing. You know, um, I have been personally bombed and shot at and rocketed and mortared and RPG, you know, in Afghanistan by the Taliban. Um, you know, you and I, we, we lost, uh, we lost colleagues, right. Um, we lost friends. Um, uh, you know, so there are Canadians who who bear the scars on their bodies from this this brutal conflict. Mm-hmm. And it's only been a year uh, that it's been over. So it's still pretty fresh. And I think it's going to take time. Um, but, yeah, um, you know, my colleagues and I just finished doing a very detailed look at the security picture. And, and exactly as you say, I mean, the upshot of that, it, it looks like the Taliban are not going anywhere. And so this is what we have to work with.
0: So a year after the fall of Kabul, um, you know, do you think there's anything that we should have, should we have committed more? Should we have tried to stay longer? Should we have tried to prevent this Taliban takeover from happening?
1: You know, the very first words of of my book that I, I published in 2013 in Canada, and it was a long time ago, um, the very first four words of the book are we lost the war. Um, you know, and that Nine, years, not ago. Just, <laughs> Nine years eight, eight yeah. years
0: before the fall of Kabul, exactly. Yeah,
1: I mean, and that wasn't, That wasn't all that radical in my social group. You know, a lot of people, you know, saw this coming. Um, It was pretty clear to me that uh, we weren't going to sort of radically change Afghanistan at gunpoint. Um, No, I mean, there are um, ways in which Afghanistan has changed. Um, You know, it's much more literate society than it used to be. Um, it's a much healthier society. There are today twice as many Afghans as there were the last time the Taliban ruled the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many things are- uh, And young Afghans, young Afghans, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, we dropped a lot of bombs on that place. Um, You and I were there, you know, we, we, we felt the impact of those explosions. And, you know, that we smashed a lot of irrigation. Uh, you know, There is today less area under effective irrigation in Afghanistan than there was in the 1970s. And now we have a much bigger population to feed. Agriculture still remains the, the largest um, source of income across the country. And so um, the, the World Bank and others are starting to think about, okay, how do we put this back together? You know, how do we get the water flowing to the crops? Uh, How do we keep the lights on, right? How do we build uh, electricity corridors? And so there are, I think, these just basic needs that Canada could help with uh, to sort of maybe remedy uh, a bit of our legacy there. Graham, as always, thank you so much for your time. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you, Ben.